Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Scott. How are you today, sir? I'm well, man. How are you today? I am doing good. Yeah, we're, we're rolling through this. We, um, it's interesting because I, I was kind of reflecting this morning when I was watching two movies back to back, which we're going to be discussing in this episode, but I was kind of reflecting on just how much I really enjoyed the previous three films that we've discussed and how we're going to be going into sort of a, a different avenue, if you will, with the next three movies we're going to discuss. Now, with this episode, we're going to be talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, and A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. So I'm wondering, Michael, before I ask you, you know, when these films came on your radar, were you sharing some similar thoughts? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, we talked on, on the second episode. I enjoyed two less than you do, but I still thought there was a lot of, you know, good stuff to talk about in there. And you know how much I love three. And, and so I was, it's been a while since I've watched the remaining movies, but it hasn't been that long. And, and I wasn't, I don't know. Let's just say I wasn't necessarily chomping at the bit to dive into these. I got thinking about the Friday, the 13th franchise when we were this morning, I was thinking about, and people may not agree with me, but I just feel like there's, when, especially when you get into ep, like Friday the 13th, two through seven, there's a sort of comforting consistency to those films. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially because those films, they, they have a formula and they have that formula down and they pretty much follow it. And, and that's what I really like about it is for the most part, you can watch any one of them at any time, you know, there's a little bit of continuity with the Tommy Jarvis thing, but for the most part, you can pick up any one of them at any time and you're going to get more or less the same experience. They have so much comforting consistency that I often get them mixed up certain scenes. Like I was convinced that the, the, uh, the paintball crew was in part four the other day. Like that's just where my mind was going. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. I apologize. Well, we'll save that discussion for when we do Friday the 13th, probably next year. Michael, let me ask you this. A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, released in 1988. When did this film come on your radar and what, if any, anticipation did you have for the movie? Well, coming off of three, which I loved even when I saw it as a kid, you know, I was pretty much all in on Nightmare on Elm Street. So I, I'm not going to lie. I, I had pretty high anticipation for Nightmare on Elm Street 4. On top of that, you know, I talked the last episode about how the Dawkins song is just one of the greatest songs ever. And at the time, I was a little long haired rocker kid. They released early the Vinnie Vincent invasion song, Love Hurts, with voiced by or sung by Mark Slaughter uh, of Slaughter fame. And uh, I loved that song, too. So I was pretty much all in. Again, didn't see it in the theater because while I could always convince my parents to rent these movies, I couldn't convince them to spend good money to go see it in the theater. Uh, so I didn't see it until it came out on VHS, but I probably would have seen it like the first weekend it came out on VHS. For me, yeah, uh, th this movie, I would have been 10 years old when this film came out. And I, by this point, I had seen Elm Street 3. I was like you. I love the movie. Like most people, just love the movie. And, you know, I had made a comment in the last episode that Elm Street 3 really kicked off the, the Freddy fandom. You know, the, the pop culture Freddy Krueger. But 
I really feel like I need to walk those comments back a little bit and, and really say that it was this film that really kicked things off. 88, we're talking Freddy's Nightmares. We're talking Fat Boys music video, Will Smith. We're talking Freddy, like you said, the Freddy 1900 number, the toys, the dolls. By this point, Freddy was so in the pop culture. And I recognize that was happening even before I saw A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4. As far as my anticipation for the movie, make no mistake, as a 10-year-old, still very, very traumatized by this entire franchise. And I I remember seeing this at my friend Jason's house because his mom was very much like, yeah, whatever you guys want, rent whatever you want. And I remember it being another situation where I was scared to death to watch the movie but couldn't look away. And I've probably seen this one at the time. I think we must have watched it three times in the weekend, during that weekend. So it would have been, just uh, just checking my notes here, this movie was released in August of 1988. So it probably was late 88 or early 89 when I actually did see the film. One thing about this movie, we talked about A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 bringing us Frank Darabont and bringing us Chuck Russell. Uh, if Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is going to be famous for anything in my book, it's for really introducing the world to the director, Rennie Harlan. So, Mike, before we get into the, the cast, the plot, and everything, I just want to ask you your thoughts overall on Rennie Harlan. I know we've had this discussion before because he's popped up a few times on the 20th Century Movie Club, but your thoughts on Rennie Harlan, the director. I mean, I think by and large, I like him. I, I will say this. I think the movies of his that I like, I really like. Like, I, I ride or die for The Long Kiss Goodnight. I think that movie is terrific. I watch it pretty much every Christmas season. You know, he's made some really borderline unwatchable movies, but he's also just a very stylish and effective director. Um and has made some movies that I just absolutely love. You know, I mentioned Long Kiss Goodnight. I love Deep Blue Sea. Obviously, I like Die Hard too, like most people. I actually like Cutthroat Island. I think that movie's a lot of fun. Um, you know, so I am, I wouldn't call myself a Rennie Harlan fanboy, but I certainly have positive thoughts about him. Uh, the Adventures of Ford Fairlane? It's been years since I've seen it. Uh, so I actually am not going to really be able to comment on that one. Um, I do want to mention, though, the movie that he did that basically got him Nightmare on Elm Street 4 is a 1987 horror movie called Prison, which is a very early Viggo Mortensen role. And it's actually a rock solid horror movie. I enjoy the hell out of Prison. I, I think it's of his horror movies. It's probably his best one. I, I think people should check that one out. I know it's got a Shout Factory release, and I think it's streaming on either Amazon Prime or Shutter. but people should definitely check out Prison. With this film, the turnaround time from Elm Street 3 to Elm Street 4 is just a little over a year. And once again, Bob Shea picks up, like we just mentioned, Rennie Harland, a, not a first time director, but certainly an unknown director. And I'm wondering, and this is going to, this is a pattern that's going to proceed with the next couple of movies. I'm wondering if this is by design because, you know, a movie like Elm Street 3 makes 50 million on, that's not the exact number, but I'm just putting it out there. So I imagine if they went back to Chuck Russell, Chuck Russell would probably be like, yeah, okay, I'm happy to do four, but you're going to have to pay me a hell of a lot more money. This is just working theories here. Do you think that's kind of the pattern in which Bob Shea was operating? Absolutely. Uh, I think Shea also knows that when you have a pop culture phenomenon like this, 
you have to continue to strike while the iron is hot, right? It, it wasn't as bad in the 80s as it is now in terms of the fickle nature and the, the capricious nature of pop culture phenomenons. You know, things are created, become a massive thing and go away overnight now. But even back then, Shea was smart enough to know you've got to strike while the iron's hot. You, you've got all these things. You've got the the toys and the Halloween costumes, like you said, and, and Freddy's Nightmares and all of this stuff. You've got to keep these movies in the theater or people, the, the next Freddy will come along. And so I think, A, it helps keep the costs down, and B, it allows them, because they can essentially get, he can have, a new crew ready to go. Cause at this point, Bob's got to know that these movies are going to be hits, right? Like he had to know that three was going to be a hit. So I imagine this movie's already probably in pre-production as three is releasing into the theaters. Cause so he's got, he's got, you can roll over those crews much more quickly by bringing in new people. Um, I did also want to mention one thing really quick. Cause we we're talking about Rennie Harlan. I totally forgot until I watched this and saw the opening credits. This was written by Academy award winning, uh, screenwriter of L.A. Confidential, Brian Helgeland. I had totally forgotten that Brian Helgeland wrote this movie as well. Yeah, no, I, until you mentioned that, I just, I hadn't even put that correlation together because I was watching the movie this morning and uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't pick that up. Shay also keeps these budgets really relatively small. This one had a six and a half million dollar budget. Again, this goes back to he knows he's going to have a hit on his hands. He doesn't need to spend, you know, huge sums of money. Absolutely. And especially the return on investment. It, it, don't quote me on this, but if I remember correctly, until the Blair Witch Project, this was the most successful movie of all time in terms of return on investment, uh, box office gross compared to uh, budget. Um, it certainly was up there, if if not the number one. Nightmare on Elm Street 3 has an incredible cast. It has a really interesting story. It deals with the last of the Elm Street children. When that movie left off, and we want to mention that there's, there's a real continuity between 3, 4, and 5. And so when that movie left off, our survivors were Kristen, played by Patricia Arquette, and we had Joey and Kincaid. And those characters, notice I didn't say those actors, those characters reprise their role in this film. So let's get into them first. Uh, Joey and Kincaid, back in the movie, they don't make it very long. And I know this is something that really, really bothers you when, it, when you have returning characters from a horror movie. Yeah, and I mean, this is the movie that makes it really, really bother me. This is the movie that... I think is just, I don't think it plays fair, man. It, it, the, the entire, and it's funny because I remembered that they killed them off in the first 15 minutes or so. No, they, it takes about half the movie for them to kill all of them off. But that entire first half of the movie is literally exists just to watch us, just for us to watch characters that at least I loved from the previous movie get killed. It, it just, I don't know, man. It makes me feel like, gross that is the only way i can really describe it is it just makes me feel gross because it's like when you do something like that it immediately for me sucks any tension out of the movie because it's like now why do i care if alice lives at the end of this because they're probably just going to bring her back in the next movie and kill her off and and, and you know and it just kind of deflates the entire thing for me i it's a decision that I, I don't understand. 
I, I'm never going to understand. And it's, yeah, to this day, it's a thing that is a giant pet peeve for me anytime a movie does it. Tuesday night takes over the role of Kristen. There's a number of reasons are out there, a number of speculations of why Patricia Arquette didn't return to the film. Have you, have you settled on one of those theories? Yeah, I've pretty much settled on the she's Patricia Arquette. She was starting to take off in media roles and that she just really didn't want to come back and and do this, that she felt like she had a more interesting career. There's even a quote. I'm just going to read it right now from her where she says they asked me to come back for four. But at that time, I was starting to break into kind of media roles. I had just done a movie of the week about teen pregnancy called Daddy, and I was really liking getting deeper with my work. I love the horror genre and the Freddy franchise, but I was chomping at the bit to try other things as an actor. I mean, I just don't think she really wanted to come back. You know, uh, I think she was it was a it was it was her break in movie, but I don't think she ever considered it sort of part of her career. And so we have Tuesday Night, who, by the way, for those who don't know, actually sings the opening song, which plays through the credits, which I didn't, I didn't really figure that out until a little while ago, that that was actually her that sings that opening song, which you'll hear at the end of this episode. And uh, that song, yeah. banger, man. Yeah. That song, that song, that song is a bop. I, I dig, I dig Nightmare. That's a good song. That's a good song. I agree with you. I listened to it about four times this morning. I was like, this is really good. But, you know, that's the glaring sort of elephant in the room of the opening of this movie is, A, you're going to kill off the remaining characters and you have recast by probably you had no choice, but you recast. So watching the movie and we're talking about the characters, I found there to be a noticeable difference between the performances of Joey and Kincaid. And then I found uh, Tuesday night's performance to be Kristen to be just so different from Patricia Arquette. So just give me your thoughts on, on the three of them reprising their role. I think Joey and Kincaid were kind of fine. I I didn't really like that they turned kind of all three of them into jerks a little bit. You know, like we get to the end of three and it's like, this is now a family. This is a family united. And they're all kind of jerky in this movie. And uh, Kristen is the one that I, I don't actually blame Tuesday night. I think the characterization of Kristen in this movie is so far removed from where Kristen ends up at the end of three that it almost feels like a different character. Like it's almost a good thing that they recast it because it it just doesn't feel like the Kristen that saved everybody (laughs) in Nightmare 3. You know, I guess they're okay, but they're not. Hashtag not my dream warriors, I guess is the best way that I would I would describe it. I like that a lot. Hashtag not my dream warriors. I really like that. We're just going to introduce the rest of the cast and then we're going to sort of just get into how majority of them meet their demise. So like we mentioned, Lisa Wilcox plays Alice. I'm going to save my thoughts for her in just a moment. You've got the character of Dan Jordan. You have the character of uh, Rick. You get the character of Debbie and the character of Sheila. Tell me about your thoughts on this cast. Versus what we've seen in, say, Elm Street 2 and Elm Street 3. And I'm just going to add, I just want to put it out there right away. I love Lisa Wilcox in this film. Other than that, I'm going to I want to hear your thoughts. And and I'm going to concur with that. So I'm going to save her for later. But everybody else, you know, they're not terrible. But this is where you really start to notice in the series that the characters are, they're no longer characters. They're just, you know, you compare all the residents in 
three of at the hospital and how even the ones like Bradley Gregg's character that's only in it for a few, you know, 10 minutes still feels like a fully fleshed out character here. They all are clearly just there to be fodder for Freddie. You know, they give him like one personality quirk, like Rick does karate and Debbie works out a lot, but is afraid of bugs. And Sheila has asthma and is really smart. But that's it. They have no depth beyond just those sort of little check boxes. And they're just really there for these elaborate kill scenes, which if what you like about Nightmare is the elaborate kill scenes, I mean, that's great for you. But for me, if I want elaborate kill scenes, I go to Friday the 13th for that. Yeah. Because I, I would way rather watch Jason Voorhees you know, just monster kill people the way he does. For me, it's the psychological components that make the good nightmare movies so good. And it's the way, again, we started with the first one talking about how Freddy uses his victims' weaknesses against them and how he sets up all these things to make him look like suicides and stuff like that. And here now, you know, Brooke Tice's character is getting turned into a giant cockroach and smashed in a roach motel it just it lacks no there's no impact for me it's fine from a visual standpoint i can appreciate the you know the kevin yeager makeup and special effects work but there's no impact i mean this movie just for me with these characters every time they die it just sits there i'm just like okay so that's how it goes you know and the thing that one of the things that got to me, like when I was watching it this morning, is when after Kincaid and Joey meet their demise and Kristen's at school and she's freaking out and they go to the Elm Street house and Rick is telling Dan the story of Fred Krueger. And I'm just going, how do you guys even know this? Like, what are we talking about? Like, how is that house even still there? Just, I mean, it just little things about that were starting to get to me when I was watching the film, but I agree with everything you said there. One dimensional is really how you, you look at these characters with the exception of Alice, your thoughts on Lisa Wilcox in this movie. I mean, I think she's another in a long line of really good female leads in the nightmare series. I am, this might be sacrilege to some. I actually prefer both Lisa Wilcox's performance and Alice is a character to Heather Langenkamp as Nancy. I think Alice is a pretty terrific character surrounded by a movie that is not up to her standards. But I think she's really good. Uh, and I, I really am kind of bummed that she didn't have a much longer, more successful career after this. Because I think Lisa Wilcox is really great in it. Yeah, and this is the... the, the the antithesis of really good character development because when you look at her at the beginning of the movie versus the end it, it literally feels like two different actresses playing this role two different actors playing this role that's how much of a transformative performance i think she gives as alice so my hat's off to her i think she did an awesome job in this movie yeah and uh and i you know not to put my cards on the table but i'm gonna I think that's going to carry over to the next movie as well. I think she's really good. You know, I know we'll talk about it a lot when we get to Freddy versus Jason, but in at least a couple of the unproduced Freddy versus Jason scripts, they wanted to bring her back. And I, I do think that that it's too bad that they couldn't find some way to bring her back because I, I really Alice is up there as one of my absolute favorite characters in the entire franchise. Absolutely. This is the first movie that has an actual resurrection of Freddy. 
Um, this is <laughs> it's quite comical. Uh, uh, Kincaid's dog, uh, interestingly enough, named Jason. I don't think that's by accident. Pea's blood. And we get the uh, consecrated ground opens up. And I, I will give this credit. I think the, the resurrection of Freddy's scene, the way his bones and organs and everything starts to develop, I think that looks really, really good. And uh, it definitely made me a little squeamish. So I have to ask you about Freddy's resurrection in this film. It's it, whatever. Like, <laughs> so here's a theme that I'm going to have for this whole episode. I think the movie looks terrific. Yeah. I think Rennie Harlan does some really interesting camera work. I think it probably looks arguably the best, certainly one of the, I think, the two best looking nightmare movies. It looks beautiful. So all the special effects are great. The cinematography is great. The, the camera decisions that, that Harlan makes are great. So I'm with you. The effect of Freddy getting resurrected looks good. Let's get I, into Mike, let's just, let's just really get into it. Tell, tell me, tell me about this movie. What really disappoints you about this movie? I think everything from a structural standpoint in this movie is just terrible. I think they, the characters are awful. I think the fact that they brought back the heroes from the last one just to kill them. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, because, again, like I said, what did we go through Nightmare 3 for if the Dream Warriors couldn't stop Freddy? Now, if you want to bring Freddy back, that's fine. But, like, he comes back some other way that doesn't involve them. You know, you could have done this movie exactly the same without killing off Kristen, Joey, and Kincaid. And had the exact same movie. You didn't need to kill them off to do this. Then on top of that, none of this movie actually, it's like they make up the rules in this one as they go along. You know, we talked in two about how it doesn't really follow the rules because they didn't know there were rules at the time. This one, we start getting, you know, positive and negative dream gates. And there's guardians of each gate and Freddy's the guardian of the nightmare gate that we've never heard of before. And, and he's fighting Alice at the end and he says, you know, I've been guarding my gate a long time, bitch. And it's like, dude, you died like 20 years ago. You haven't been guarding your gate for very long. At, like, I, I just feel like I cannot believe this movie's written by the guy that wrote L.A. Confidential. That's the biggest disappointment for me in this movie. Let me put it that way. The only other thing I'll say is I do think it's funny that people criticize Freddy versus Jason for having like Freddy do Muay Thai in that when like we've got a terrible martial arts fight at the end of this movie. So it's like apparently doing Kung Fu is in Freddy's repertoire. Uh, apparently that's just a thing he does, but it's much worse here than it is later on down the road. But I, I don't know, Dana, what about you? What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I uh, first I want to say, I agree with what you said. Visually, I think this is a very striking movie, especially considering two factors. One, the budget, six and a half million dollars. And when you watch the Never Elm, Never Sleep Again Elm Street Legacy documentary, which we've talked about on previous episodes in this retrospective, which is on Shutter, a lot of really interesting practical effects used in this. This is, this is again, this is still pre-CGI. So I think a lot of the effects look good. I think the movie is visually stunning in, in some aspects, especially considering the budget. Like, I'm just like, my God. That being said, I agree with everything you said here. I am... Hmm, and wait till we get to the next one. Uh, <laughs> I am... I, I'm sort of at a loss for words watching this movie today because of 
how much those first three films just impa- impacted me, like you said, on a character level. Like, I emotionally cared about the characters. Let's do a little rapid fire. I'm going to ask you just real quick, each one of the death scenes in this film. Kincaid's death, what'd you think? I bland and I mean, it's a cool visual look yep. when he's trapped by all the cars, yep. but it's pretty just it's a standard. It's a C. OK, Joey's death. Joey, really? Joey, Joey, you're a dream warrior, man. And you're just like, oh, there's a naked chick under my waterbed. You like you're not aware that you're like dreaming. And <laughs> like I, I Joey's death annoyed me to no end um, because it just. Nothing about the Joey that we knew from the previous movie, other than, you know, he's a horn dog, uh, indicated that he would fall for that. Uh, so it was and I didn't even think the the visuals were very cool in it. I mean, I guess he looks OK when he's trapped under yeah. the waterbed. But uh, Kristen's death. But we have to couple that in with, the you know, she's on the beach and there's a Freddy shark. So uh, Kristen's whole death scene. I mean, the Freddy shark. This is obviously, of course, again, this is where the movie, where the series really steers into that kind of silly, cartoony Freddy. I think the stuff when she pulls Alice into the dream and then they find her and she's burning alive, I think that's actually pretty effectively done. It, it certainly at least gives Kristen's death the weight that I think if you're going to make the terrible decision of killing her off, I do think it gives her death the weight that it warrants. Although again, they're making up rules like Alice, you're going to need my power. When did Kristen learn how to transfer her power? Was that a thing she's always been able to do? Like I, there's just weird decisions that they make in this movie. Fair enough. Fair enough. Robert England as a nurse. I mean, again, it, it's fine. It is what it is. It's this is one of those movies where I feel like it's either going to get you or it's not. You're either in or you're not. And so I know people that love that. I know people that just absolutely love the Freddy shark and love Freddy on the beach putting sunglasses on and, and stuff like that. More power to him. Love your movies, man. But I feel like if this movie doesn't hook you in the first, I don't know, 10 minutes, it's not going to get you at all because, yeah, I just. It's a a lot of the same for 90 minutes. And I have a theory on this. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Sheila's death in the classroom. Eh, I I mean, it has some good effects, but Sheila was already such a non-character to begin with that it didn't really do anything for me. Because, I mean, of all the characters, they spend the least amount of time with Sheila. Like, literally, we know she has asthma and she's smart. That's it. Um, And so it just didn't really... It was fine. But it didn't affect me in any way. Rick, the uh, the karate master, if you will, that has that. Well, you know, you are much more an expert on martial arts than I am. So I have to ask you your thoughts about his um, his workout regiment in the the garage before we actually get to his uh, his death scene. I mean, it's it's kind of what you expected from a 1988 version you know it's clearly they got their idea of what karate and martial arts looks like from the karate kid it's fine i actually kind of liked that i I liked his little workout i liked that it was to um was it the song by the it was about the church i can't remember who did this song but i liked i liked that it was to that song it was fine um the fight 
is one of my least favorite fights in the entire franchise or his death, I should say, because this is where, again, I say this movie is nasty. It's mean and it's nasty because this starts a trend in the later sequels of a character fighting back against Freddy and getting the upper hand only for us to find out that it doesn't matter at all. And Freddy's omnipotent and nothing you do can beat him. And so, you know, Rick starts fighting back. He starts kicking him. He starts doing all that stuff. And you're kind of like, yeah. And then it just turns out to be nothing. And he dies. And we've talked a lot about how Freddy does like to play with his food. But in a long, drawn out, torturous way, you know, the way he toys with Jesse throughout the entirety of nightmare two here it's just like it's just mean and and that i know horror fans listening to this are rolling their eyes that i'm like oh horror movies mean i'm you know like man up uh but like it's just mean with no effect it, it, it just instead is so mean that it becomes boring to me and when we get to the next one there's another kill that is the exact same thing copied almost identically in terms of how it's structured and it pisses me off just as bad as this one does and this one i thought was really and look I, I i did a little reading on this and i looked it up and i re this was one of these situations where you know alice does a lot of daydreaming and at rick's funeral they there's a scene where she daydreams where rick opens up the funeral and starts talking to her and apparently they had filmed that scene already and were basically two things one pretty much out of money for the production. And two, there was a writer's strike that was happening. So any there wasn't allowed to be any sort of revisions to the screenplay. So they had to kind of quickly piece together Rick's death scene. So this is why he's fighting an invisible Freddy. You know, like, I think how much more effective would that been to have him actually physically fighting Freddy? Like you see him fighting Freddy. That I think would have been a little bit better, but I just think that entire scene is just, is just weak. And uh, I agree with you. It's just, it's not a very good scene. Uh, Debbie's death. This is where we start getting into the super squeamish stuff for me, which we're going to really talk about when we get into the next film. Like I just, I, I'll, I just kind of fast forwarded through this one until we get to the scene where he actually just crushes the Roach Motel. You know, I don't do well on that, on the body horror, the splatter horror. And, yeah. and so I'll just ask you to comment on, on her, her demise. Well, I mean, from a set piece standpoint, it's pretty terrific. I mean, it, it's very elaborate. It's by far and away, I think, the most elaborate kill in the movie. We get, you know, her arms break and then she turns into a giant cockroach and stuff. It's very good effects. They clearly knew that was one of the money shots of the movie. And I do really quickly want to just tangent and shout out Brooke Tice, who plays Debbie, had a long, fairly uh, long arc on 90210, and she is married to... Uh, one of my favorite unsung action heroes, Brian Genesee. So good for Brooke Tice, in spite of the fact that I don't really like Debbie as a character. Uh, good for her. But it's it it's a cool looking kill. But again, what do we know about Debbie other than literally she works out and she's scared of bugs. And so her kill consists of her working out and being scared of bugs. It's again, it's from a intellect i don't even want to say intellectual standpoint from a set piece from a as a guy who likes special effects i can look at it and go yeah man that's pretty cool but from a narrative or story or a character standpoint or drama standpoint it's just completely dramatically inert there's nothing there to make me feel 
anything whatsoever. It's interesting because when you just when, with what you have it to compare it with, there's foreshadowing in Elm Street Three. It's there, but it's not in your face like it is in this movie. I mean, not at all. No, and the, because they're characters. It feels like it's part of who they are, not just a characteristic that they possess, you know, because I, I know some people listening are probably going to contend that or argue that I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the D&D kid in three. Well, isn't that fight kind of the same as Rick's fight in this one? Yeah, but it doesn't feel as mean and nasty. It's just he's just not strong enough to beat Freddy. But it's okay because the other dream warriors are, you know, he's a fallen soldier in the battle. He's not just fodder for Freddy to cruelly toy with because he's a character. And Debbie is literally two, two attributes and that's it. She's, she's not a character. There's nothing to her. So my theory about this whole situation and why I think you and I are both feeling this way has, um, has a lot of um, a lot of credence when you look at the above the title top billing for this film, which I'm sure you saw when the movie starts. It says Robert England in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four: The Dream Master. Bob Shea knew what he was doing. He knew he had a hit on his hands. He knew he had a franchise on his hand on his hands. But he also knew who the star of the show was. I mean, at this point, it's it's almost like. Make these characters one-dimensional. It doesn't matter. People are not coming for the characters. They're coming for Freddy. Which, look, this movie made... It was the highest grossing of the series. It made $58 million in 1988. So get me wrong. His intuition was correct about that. But, you know... Looking back on it many years later, we're sitting here discussing how much we don't like this movie. So would you agree that Freddy Krueger is the star of the show now? Oh, absolutely. There's there's zero question. I mean, this movie is 100% all. He's no longer he's no longer that scary monster that is chasing Tina down the alleyway in the shadows. He's at the forefront. I mean, he is he is the main character of this movie and the only reason to watch the movie, to be honest with you, because you're unlike the previous 3 you're not interested in the humans in this one, uh, the, the, you know, the people, uh, except for, again, Alice is terrific. But yeah, he's the main character. He's why people are watching this movie. And that's fine for fans of Freddy. I said way back at the start of this series, I'm not the biggest Freddy guy. And so for me, I need those characters. I need those that drama and that emotion and those characters that I care about, because I think there's better movies with better like kill frenzies than if I just want to watch people get killed. I got a bunch of eighties horror movies I can go to over this one. Let's talk about Robert England's performance in this movie. Your thoughts. He's doing what, look, I don't, I don't want this to come across as I'm criticizing Robert England in any way. I think Robert England's a delightful human being. I think he's actually a far, far better actor than he sometimes gets credit for. He's given the performance that they want and he's giving it very well, but it's still a cartoon. There's nothing scary about Freddy in this movie. Uh, for me, uh, at least I don't, I don't think there's Freddy has lost any ability to get under my skin. 
in this movie. Um, he's he's doing the performance that they want him to do, and he's doing it well. But it's not my favorite performance of his by any means. Watching this objectively as a 42-year-old, I would say that for the first 30 seconds that he's on screen, when he is resurrected and he says, you shouldn't bury me, I'm not dead, he got under my skin a little bit. But throughout the duration of this movie, it just became so hokey to me that this is the movie that probably made me start getting over my my Freddy Krueger trauma. Even even at ten or eleven years old, I um. But I'll agree with you. I'll second what you said that that you know Robert England himself is certainly not the issue there. He's doing exactly what is asked of him, and I think he's doing it well in that sense. Because if you're wanting to create Freddy as sort of the I hate to say this, but sort of the protagonist of this story or the hero of this of this franchise, now he's doing exactly what you want him to do. You're you're making him a little bit affable, if I will, if you will, for for people that want to be a fan of him. So before we wrap the, up the discussion on this movie, we, we talk about in each movie sort of the, the way that Freddy is, uh, meets his demise. And this one is really easy. He just sees his reflection in the mirror. And I know I'm, I'm really paraphrasing, you know, we're sort of just skimming across this entire last scene with his showdown with Alice, but I was just kind of a bit of an eye roll. Although the visuals of him sort of being ripped apart was pretty good. Yeah, the visuals of that were great. And I do also need to shout out people who know me know that I am a massive Linnea Quigley fan. Uh, horror, 80s horror scream queen Linnea Quigley has a cameo in that scene. She is the, uh, as all the bodies are ripping out of him and the arms and stuff, she she is the boobs that come out of, that, that tear out of his chest. So, uh, you know, eh, Linnea Quigley, good for her. But uh, it's a very, very impressive visual effect. And it's, it's ooky. It, it's kind of actually one of the few things in the movie that got a little bit under my skin just because it does look, gross i mean the special effects team did a bang up job on that but again it's not so much of a interesting ending i mean it's great because alice fights back and figures out how to beat him but you compare it to three where we have this sort of again this family coming together Uh, i'm a big supergirl fan and there's there's a line in supergirl stronger together and and i love that about three that it's it's all of them having to come together to beat freddy and and here it's just alice and yeah she forces him to look at himself and it, it gets into that whole stuff with the gates that is also just not developed that's actually kind of an interesting idea but they don't develop it at all and so it's a bunch of mythology that they bring into this movie, but they don't they just drop it in. They don't do anything with it. I think it's a pretty I think it's a pretty mediocre ending. I will say, though, Alice gearing up for battle is just awesome. Like that scene gets me every time when she starts, she's taking down all the pictures and she's putting on all the leather straps and she starts using the the nunchucks, you know, because she's got Rick's power and all of that. That scene is pretty baller. I, I like that scene a lot. I just think the fight that comes after is a bit of a letdown. Sure. I call that the commando scene. Because no, yeah, no, no movie does it better than, than commando. Yeah, no, it's totally a commando scene and it's really good. <laughs> 
real quick, because we're just going to get into Elm Street 5, because I don't think we need to go through what we like and don't. Well, l- listen, just just real briefly on the things that I, I like about this movie. I like that it brought us Rennie Harlan. I like the visuals of the movie. And, you know, you could tell that that the director was was destined for, for really good things based on what he was able to accomplish with the $6.5 million budget. And I'm going to save my thoughts when we get to the recommend, don't recommend section. So anything else you want to add that you like about this film? No, basically that Rennie Harlan, Lisa Wilcox and Tuesday night's theme song. Yeah, those are those are that's those are the high points of the movie for me. Yeah. And I should I should say, yeah, just just add on what I said. Of course, I agree with you, Lisa Wilcox. I do like the Tuesday night song. Uh, Mike, would you recommend a Nightmare on Elm Street Park for the Dream Master? Uh, I don't you know, this I, I've been dreading you asking me that question all week, because for me personally, no, I don't. I don't like this movie. And when we get to the end of the series and we do our rankings, this isn't going to be the bottom of the list, but it's not going to be very high up there. That being said, I do know so many people who really do like this movie that I'm going to, I guess, give it a recommendation if you've never seen it before that you should probably see it at least once. But for me, I will visit one and three uh, fairly regularly two less regularly. I, I, I I'm going to have to do another podcast on this movie before I watch it again. I think, I think that's the only way that I would ever watch this movie again is if somebody wanted me to do a podcast on it. For me, the, my rec, my, this is broken down into two parts. If you're looking for just a standalone horror movie, that's got some good visuals. Uh, it's gory. It's graphic. It looks good. I think you could do a lot worse for something from the 1980s, from the, the late 1980s. I think you could do a lot worse. When, if you're asking me, so un- under those under those conditions, I could recommend the movie. But if you're asking me as someone who is a fan of the Nightmare on Elm Street trilogy, if you will, the first three films, and, and in, in some cases, a huge fan, this movie has serves no purpose whatsoever it does all the it doesn't do anything that i think is like like for me scary terrifying menacing freddy sells so much more than than what we're getting in the next three movies so this is not a recommend at all for me not even not even close if you're looking you know to carry on sort of the the elm street legacy if you will um not to be not to be uh, outdone as far as getting movies into the theater quickly you had mentioned that you 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 assumed that they had probably started the pre-production on this film well elm street 3 was just getting released i know for a fact that the pre-production on elm street 5 had begun while this film was still being made because this thing nightmare on elm street 5 made it into the theater nine months after the release of this film so mike i will ask you this elm street 5 the dream child uh when did this movie come on your radar and what if any anticipation did you have for that film I guess I still had a little bit of anticipation because I did, even when I saw this as a kid, you know, this was 89, I'd have been 13 target audience for this. Um, I did like Alice. So the fact that they were bringing back Alice uh, and also, again, I don't know why, but for some reason, the Nightmare soundtracks were uh, one of my ways into it because this had a brand new song by Iron Maiden's Bruce Dickinson called bring your daughter to the slaughter 
And so I got the soundtrack again. They released it like a month before the movie. I got the soundtrack and listened to it repeatedly. So when the movie came out, I was I was ready to watch it again. Had to wait until it came out on VHS because couldn't get my parents to take me to go see it, but did see it as soon as it came out on VHS. Uh, I was still kind of in the Freddy world at this point. I remember seeing No Holds Barred in the movie theater. And this, the teaser trailer for this movie played. And one of the things I think was just, that was one of the most unusual and remarkable experiences in a movie theater I have ever had in my life. In the sense that I was going to see a movie starring Hulk Hogan and the crowd in the movie theater, and this is up in Canada, the crowd in the movie theater, as soon as the lights dim, the trailer hasn't even played yet. And the entire audience started cheering like we were at a wrestling event, just yelling out, Hogan, Hogan, Hogan. And, you know, the first trailer that plays was for Ghostbusters 2. And then the second trailer that plays is, was the teaser for Elm Street 5, where it just shows sort of this gothic baby carriage, and you don't really know what's happening, then Freddy's glove bursts out, and the crowd in the theater erupted into applause and started chanting, Freddy, 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 and I remember that because, again, back to what we were just talking about, he's the hero of these stories now. He is the reason why people are seeing these movies. So I remember that was sort of the, the first glimpse of it coming on my radar. I saw this movie a year after it came out on home video and I saw it just that one time and rewatched it for a second time today. That should probably tell you how I feel about this film. This is another up and coming director, Stephen Hopkins. Uh, a year or uh, let's see, a year later, he would do Predator 2. What are your thoughts on Stephen Hopkins as a director? So I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm actually going to be a little bit more positive on this movie than I was on the last one because I love Stephen Hopkins. I absolutely love Stephen Hopkins. I, I wouldn't be doing justice if I didn't uh, shout out our friends Patrick and Adam at F This Movie for coining the phrase Hopkins bump because <laughs> he's he's just such a cool guy that when you meet him, you view his movies in a little more – uh, positive light, but I really love Stephen Hopkins. He cut his teeth as the second unit director on Highlander working with Russell Mulcahy. So he kind of adopted that same really stylistic way of shooting movies. I think Blown Away with Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones is a terrific, almost lost 90s action movie. Judgment Night is a lot of fun. Also really famous for that soundtrack uh, Hopkins is really good. He did do lost in space and lost in space blows. And I feel like maybe that was a movie that got a little bit away from him, but nonetheless, I, I have nothing but positive thoughts about Stephen Hopkins. And that's going to come up as we talk about the movie, because I think there's a lot of problems with this movie, but what he does, the way he shoots it, uh, the way he structures it, the way he edits it, I think he really brings a style to this movie that makes it watchable for me. And, and and I think in a lesser director, this movie is absolutely unwatchable. But I think because of Stephen Hopkins, there's some good stuff in it. I want to second what you say. I actually, I'm one of six people that saw Blown Away in the theater. Did you see that in the theater? I did. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so that's uh, so we're uh, five and six out of the six people. <laughs> 
I remember it having, you know, a lot of U2 music in it. <laughs> so this is, again, we talked about there being a continuity between three, four, and five. So this one, we have Alice Lisa Wilcox reprising her role as Alice. Uh, she's graduating from high school. She's back with, da I mean, her and Dan are now a couple. And, you know, I'm not going to get into the plot of the movie. Um, we just have another cast. She has a new, a new round of friends, if you will. So in this movie, we have the characters of Yvonne, Greta, Dan, Mark. We'll get into the, uh, the you know, bringing back Amanda Kruger and, of course, the Jacob. Uh, Lisa Wilcox, Alex Johnson, she is pregnant in this movie. And it's her unborn baby that's having dreams. Is that is that the best way to describe how Freddy is sort of re resurrected in this film? Yeah, basically he's using her unborn baby to bring himself back through the world. That's they don't you know much like they brought in a bunch of new rules in the last one. They do it here, and it's very clear at this point that at a screenwriting standpoint at a structural standpoint they don't give a damn i mean this movie's written by john skip and craig specter who are actually writers that i kind of like they are the founders of the uh literary movement known as splatterpunk which was a movement that started in the 80s where horror books became really focused on you know gore and horrific things and i kind of like those as you know dana i'm a gore hound and i like i like skip inspector but it's just obvious to me at this point in these movies that nobody gives a damn whether the script is they're just literally tying shit together to get from one kill scene to another there's no thought to anything going on in it i mean i think we should just get into this the, the biggest problems i have with this movie is exactly what you just described like this is not nothing in this movie at all is remotely scary it is just downright disgusting and there are some parts, I mean, I'm, listen, this is just personal preference. I'm not telling anyone no, if they like this movie, that's great. I'm happy for you, but I, I can't. I, 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 I struggle to get through this movie. I'm almost at a loss for words on how to even talk about this movie. This is how much I don't like this film, but I'm going to try my best. Stephen Hopkins does a, does a great job, much like Rennie Harlan, uh, on a visual level. There. I've said, my, I've said what I like about the movie. Well, I mean... Yeah, it, this is all Hopkins, right? This movie works because of Hopkins. I mean, like it or not, the M.C. Escher-esque finale is really impressive to watch. You know, it, narratively, it doesn't work at all, but it's really impressive to watch. And, and, and I do also like that this has a distinct look. Hopkins shot a lot of this movie with sort of a blue filter on, and it gives it a very different look from 4, especially because 4 is really bright. You know, Rennie Harlan's not like a moody director. He's kind of big and out there on stuff, and this makes it a little bit more visually distinct from four which i i kind of like but yeah <laughs> i mean I, it's, it's, i'm with you this is this movie i i think stephen hopkins is what's good about this movie there's there's not much else can we just talk about the fact that two movies in dan is still just dull 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 like how does dan <laughs> not get more interesting after two he's one of the only characters in this entire franchise to appear in more than one movie and God, he sucks. He sucks in both movies he's in. He is. You know how we talked about in our in our second episode in this retrospective about how Grady was sort of initially you thought he was the stereotypical jock, and you know it turns out that he there's he's a much more nuanced character, and and there, you know there's a lot going on with him. 
that's kind of what I mean when we're talking about Dan as being the stereotypical jock. I mean, he literally does nothing in either of these movies except just kind of be there when other things are happening. So I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I will say, you know, because we do typically talk about him. I think his death scene is probably the most impressive death scene. It's certainly the death scene where they spent the most money. Uh, that That's kind of the one where you can tell they blew a lot of their budget. That and the finale, the M.C. Escher finale. But I like his death scene. I think his death scene is is pretty creative. Again, it's dramatically inert because... Dan is inert as a human being, but, uh, but I think his death scene's pretty clever. I'll give you that. Like watching it this morning, uh, it, yeah, like just that whole scene on the motorcycle and you, I got the, the sense that there was a lot of speed involved. Like it didn't just seem like he was just going down the highway. It looked like, like he was like going balls out. Like this is insane. So I'll, I'll give that to you. Um, from what I did watch, because I was closing my eyes a lot during that scene when all the, the gears and the wires and everything are going inside. I'm like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Let's, I, we have to talk about the, the scene involving Mark because, you know, you, I know you, when we were talking about Rick's death, you said that they basically mirror the exact same thing in this film and that you're, you're definitely talking about Mark's death, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Fuck Mark's death. Um, <laughs> like, Again, Hopkins, it's really the like 2D stuff, you know, the way they make Freddy look like a two dimensional character and Mark look like a two dimensional comic book character at times. Like there's some really great visual stuff. But again, this is not another one of those just absolutely mean spirited kills where Mark's whole thing is he has no confidence because he's a comic book nerd. And so he develops confidence, starts fighting back against Freddy. It's the exact thing that Joey does at the end of Dream Warriors. And that's a big rah-rah moment in that movie, right? When Joey finds his voice and can scream. It's the exact same thing here, only they just then are like, eh, no, we're just going to take that away from you. Like, we're just... But again, there's no buildup. There's no sense that Freddy is toying with his food. It's just, he's omnipotent at this point. And I think omnipotent villains are really boring this you see this a lot in action cinema too where there's these villains that are just they can do anything and and they're always one step ahead of the hero until the very end and i just think that's kind of boring because it's like what are we even watching all of this for other than like we've kind of hit on other than we like watching freddy kill kids I mean, Freddy's the star. That's what we're watching it for. And if that's the case, if that's how you view it, then that Mark death is great for you because it looks really cool and there's a lot going on and you get to laugh at Freddy being, I'm super Freddy, you know. But no, I hate that death. I hate that death scene as much as I hate anything in this franchise. I agree with you that on a visual level, that, that looks really good. And I, I listen, I'm trying to find the positives in this movie. There are some visual elements to this movie, I think, that look really good. And, and you know, the, you know, taking the color out and it's all black and white and, and like, like, I get all that. It looks good. I won't comment on Greta's death because uh, just thinking about it makes me sick to my stomach. So if you've got anything to say about that, I'll, 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 
I'll I'll listen in, but I don't have anything to say. That's how much I hate this fucking movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Greta's yeah, Greta's another one of those. She's not a character, right? Yeah. She's she's a thing. She's a couple attributes. She her mom wants her to be a model, so she doesn't eat, and she's very pretty. And Mark has a crush on her, and that's like that's it. That's all she's got. I think it's a fairly for as gross as her death is. I think it's fairly boring. Like there's just a certain point where. Okay, you know, I don't have I don't get squeamish like you do. So for me, I I don't have any problem with it. I just thought it was kind of boring and it didn't have the creativity of either Dan or Mark's deaths. It was just there. It was like, oh, it's been 10 minutes. We got to kill somebody off. You know, I mean, it just feels so much about this movie, except for Hopkins feels so perfunctory it just feels like they're just checking boxes and you mentioned earlier that the friday movies do that and that gives them a sense of comfort right they're like a warm blanket but the thing with that is is friday the 13th didn't start off with nightmare on elm street like like i am a friday guy i love friday the only friday movie i think that can even smell nightmare and Nightmare 3 is Friday 6. I think the Friday series is 100% below in quality Nightmare 1 and 3. And so Friday's not starting from the same level. We're starting from a level of a movie that I think can be argued as the greatest horror movie of all time. I don't I don't agree. I don't think that is the case. But you know what? If you want to make an argument that Nightmare on Elm Street is the best horror movie ever, I got time to hear that argument. So the drop in quality between that to this is something that Friday never had, right? The Friday series just doesn't have that variation. This is, man, this is, I don't know that there's a series... That starts as high as this one does and drops as low as this one does. I mean, even Terminator, when we talked about that, I don't think gets as low as this series does at its worst. No, you know I'm going to agree with you on that. This was the episode I was dreading talking about. Like The other ones, I'm not going to have a problem talking about. Moving forward, I'm not going to have an issue talking about. And you're absolutely right. Like, the Friday the 13th movies, like, even... Like, I don't, we have never discussed your, you know, how you rank those movies, but like even watching Jason Takes Manhattan or Jason X or the Friday the 13th remake, all of those movies I think are in exponentially more watchable than this piece of shit. So I'm just going to ask you, you know, what'd you think of Robert England's performance in this movie? Yeah, it's it's the same performance as four. He's 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 giving the performance that I think he's I mean, there's a reason we're doing these together, right? They're two halves of the same movie, essentially, other than the directorial differences. And he's giving the exact same performance. It's it's a comedic performance. It's a cartoon. He's doing it well. Uh, He's doing what they want him to do. I feel like his makeup in this one is way worse than it was in three and four for some reason. Like I feel like they made some changes to his makeup that aren't great. Uh, But he's, he's fine. He's fine. If you like, if this is the Freddy you like, he's fine. I don't like this Freddy. I want, you're all my children now, Freddy. I don't, I don't want super Freddy. You know, this is not my, this is not the Freddy that I'm interested in. 
the way Freddy meets his demise, it's very convoluted. This whole this whole thing. You've got uh, you know Amanda Kruger coming back, Freddy's mom. There's a whole thing at the beginning where Alice witnesses you know the the hundred maniacs and and the birth of Freddy and just the way Freddy demise it meets his demise in this film. We talk about it in each one. Your thoughts on that? It's really convoluted. I mean, we we didn't mention Kelly Jo Minter, who is an actress that I like quite a bit. She plays Yvonne. She's annoying as hell for most of the movie because she's the only one of Alice's friends that won't believe that Freddy's real. But then she almost dies in a dream and, and Freddy, you know, and she believes it. So she helps free the spirit in the real world of Amanda Kruger while Alice is fighting Freddy in the MC Escher dream world to save her son, Jacob. And it ends up, as far as I can tell, Jacob uses his powers to turn Freddy into an infant, which Amanda Kruger then absorbs back into her womb, while Alice absorbs the now infant Jacob into her womb. Again, Dana, like I said, this is where it's very clear nobody gives a shit. Like, nobody working on this movie, except arguably Hopkins, because he's trying some interesting visual stuff. But nobody producing it, New Line, Bob Shea, the writers, nobody gives a shit about this movie. Because there's no... The ending's just... It's there. I don't want to say it doesn't make sense because I could follow it, but it's convoluted. It's bland. It looks like they ran out of money at the last minute. And it just isn't compared to Nancy stabbing Freddy himself, you know, after she gets stabbed, jumping behind Freddy and using his own glove to to sort of stab him while they're burning his bones in the real world. It's nothing, you know, or even more importantly, compared to Nancy pulling him out into the real world and setting up booby traps throughout her house to fuck him up. Like this is just weird and dumb. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's I think it's I think it's one of the worst Freddy uh sort of climaxes. This movie was made on an eight million dollar budget and it brought in twenty-two million. So it brought in less than half. And we're talking about nine months after an Elm Street film brought in close to 60 million. So we're looking at real franchise fatigue by this point. And they're going to take a couple years off and kind of reevaluate because I'm not alone in, in my sort of disdain for this movie. A lot of people and, and critics, a lot of critics don't like horror movies. Make no mistake about it. Like this wasn't a really well reviewed film. Most of the Nightmare on Elm Street films weren't really well reviewed, but audiences didn't like this movie for the most part. And I am not sure that this movie gets the reevaluation and the resurgence that Elm Street 2 does. Would you agree or disagree on that? I would agree. I, I don't think there's, like I said, I when we get to whether we'd recommend it and stuff, I don't have the vehement dislike of it that you do. That is for, for me. But I don't think there's enough here to reevaluate necessarily I, I mean i would love to see stephen hopkins get a reevaluation as a director and this could be part of that but it, there's not anything really to this movie so there's not really a lot to reevaluate uh i don't think and that that is the biggest thing that i think is going to stop it from uh kind of getting that late assessment plus you know Horror movies always get the reassessment pretty much like clockwork. 
uh, 20 years after they come out and we're well past that point. And I don't really feel like this one has gotten that big push that you'd expect from from something the way like Nightmare 2 has. Mike, would you recommend Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child? I mean, I like it better than 4. So I guess if I gave four the slightest possible recommendation for the people who want this type of Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I think the stuff that Stephen Hopkins does is really cool uh, visually, but that's not it's a bad movie like and I hate saying that because objectively like it's not, you know, like what you like. But for me, it's a very bad movie. Uh, And so. Honestly, no, no. As much as I love Hopkins, I'm not even going to say that I'm going to give it a slight recommendation. I like it better than four, but I still think four has more to offer somebody that is watching the series. I'm just going to say no, skip this one. And knowing where the series goes from here, you don't need to watch it. You can skip it. There's nothing. This is sort of the last of that continuity uh, that, that the series tried to develop. And so nah, skip it. It's a not recommend for me. So we're on to. Uh, I'm, just <laughs> I'm just gonna stick with that. I think it's clear to anybody that's been listening to this conversation that I'm not gonna be recommending this film. And look, I, as I've gotten older and and, and more mature about sort of my thoughts on on movies and productions and all this, uh, I I will not tell you anyone that they're. They're, that they're, I think they're wrong if they like this movie. If you like this movie, that's great. Uh, it's it's not for me. And if someone's asking me my honest opinion of the film, it's it's not it's a not recommend. And I'm just trying to be as you know as civil about it as I can because I I I oof I almost said the hate word. <laughs> I don't like this movie at all. And when we were discussing doing this franchise, there was a part of me that was almost hesitant to say, let's do it because I knew it would mean that I would have to watch this film again. And I've been purposely avoiding this movie for a little over 30 years now. And it it ruined my morning coffee. So there, I said it. I was watching it with my coffee this morning and it ruined my morning coffee. Mike, any closing thoughts on these two Elm Street films we were just discussing? I was just going to say, I'm glad we decided to talk about them together because a, I don't want to prolong your talking about this movie any more than possible. And B, I think the problems are fairly consistent between the two. You know, there's some spikes here and there are some different things we take away, but I think the problems are fairly consistent between the two of them. And I get that some people are going to be listening to this and they're going to love both these movies or one of them or the other one. And then that's great. Like what you like. But for you and I, this isn't what we want out of a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Either one of these. It's just not for us. And uh, and it's I think it's going to take at least one more movie before we get back to sort of a Nightmare on Elm Street that we is what we're looking for. No, other than that, I, I think I've said enough. All right, perfect. If people want to follow you on social media? You can find me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. Find me at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you can also find our continually updating list of the movies we've recommended on the 20th Century Movie Club. I update that as soon as the episodes come out, after a few days, so people have a chance to listen to them. You can also check me out at my new podcast, Adkins Undisputed, which you can find on Twitter at Adkins Podcast. Check us out there. It's a new thing I'm starting. It's been uh, 
people have responded pretty well so far. So make sure to give me a follow there. Those are the best places to find me. Perfect. And you'll find a link to uh, his podcast, the Scott Atkins podcast in this episode show notes. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Dana Buckler show. You can follow the show on Instagram at the Dana Buckler show. I'm on Instagram at the real Dana Buckler. I'm on Twitter at real Dana Buckler. Uh, if you want, the email address is the Dana Buckler show at gmail.com. If you want to email us with questions or comments, and I want to just pose this question to the listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts on these movies. A few people, we have a Facebook group, which you can find a link in this episode show notes and and a couple of our a couple of people that follow on that group have they've started submitting their rankings for this this series so i would love for you guys to join that facebook group join the discussion and post how you rank this entire series and of course michael and i will do that when we get to the final episode in the series so we're five movies in We've, we're past the halfway point we're, buddy. Pa- we're past the halfway point and the next one we're going to get into uh just to tease a little something about that movie, uh, I enjoy that next movie far more than the two we are discussing today, and I'll leave it at that. Anything you want to tease about the next film? I literally have not watched the next film since I first saw it, so I- I'm actually interested to revisit it. I will. Uh, I don't have anything else to tease because, to be honest with you, I don't have fond memories of it, but I don't know that I will build the same way when i revisit it excellent all right well this is going to be good we have a good conversation all right mike uh, until next time stay safe my friend we'll talk soon likewise buddy and my name is dana buckler and thank you so much for listening 